Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. It's going to be on the screen, all these scriptures. Our primary text is John chapter 8. We're going to continue the series on the I Am sayings of Jesus. Our big question to ask ourselves is, who is Jesus? And more specifically, who did Jesus say that he was? And that is the, the primary catalyst for this study. We started with, before Abraham was, I am, from John chapter 8, as an introductory message. Last week, we discussed what it means when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And today, we will look at, I am the light of the world, hence the theme of a few of those songs that we sang. But I want to start, before we look at John 8 and 12, which where Jesus says, I am the light of the world, I want to show to you and reveal to you how that Jesus calling himself the light of the world is rooted in Old Testament prophecy and Messianic text, and how that in multiple ways Jesus is fulfilling a Messianic uh, calling and fulfillment of the Old Testament. And this starts with Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, where Isaiah prophesies, verse 1, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. There's several key words and phrases in there that are very important, and I'll explain that in a moment. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Go over to Isaiah 42 very quickly. Forty-two and twelve. This is also a messianic chapter that has very rich messianic prophecy included in it. Verse twelve: Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man; He shall stir up His zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against His enemies. I have held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself. Now I like. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will make the rivers coastlands. I will dry up the pools. I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. They shall, not, they shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed who trust in carved images and who say to the molded images, you are our gods. But he says, I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them. Now go to Matthew chapter 4. You know what? I just read the wrong, the wrong text in Isaiah. Go to Matthew 4. Let me, let me get my wires crossed there. 
Anybody ever do that? Any of you know what day of the week it is? Monday. You've had a long week. Here, listen to this. I meant to read, it's actually Matthew 4, 12 through 17. It's Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. So listen to this very quickly. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. That makes a little more sense, doesn't it? Matthew 4 and 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Remember what we read in Isaiah chapter 9? That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning, I, I am the kingdom of heaven, and I am here. The kingdom of heaven has come. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you, God, that you bring light into dark places. I thank you, God, that when we were born into sin, into iniquity, that we were hardened and darkened by sin and our minds were futile and we were ignorant while yet floundering in our sin, you came and shone a light into our lives and you have brought us and translated us into the kingdom of your son where we once dwelled in the kingdom of darkness. Help us to see more than ever that you are light, that you are life, and that in you we have a clear path ahead of us. It's in you that all things are exposed, all things come to the light, and in you, Lord, we have guidance and direction. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I have some, some, some maps and some illustrations, some pictures for you. So pull up that, that next slide. Cody, show, show them that first map, okay? This, this little introductory part of, of this, uh, the, first, uh, the first map. Is there a map on there? Okay. So when the 12 tribes divided up their land after uh, Joshua went over the River Jordan and they divided up the land, you see there how that Zebulun and Naphtali, you see them? You see those two tribes right there? They are in the northwest portion of the area of Israel, and they, specifically Naphtali, it borders all of the Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Tiberias. It's one of the same. But that little body of water at the northern part, not the tiny, not the tiny uh, little piece of water, but the, the bigger, that's the Sea of Galilee, and Naphtali borders that, Zebulon being right there in the area. Now show them the next map, which shows Israel in the, in the time of Jesus. So it's, it's really hard for you to see, but, so you see my pointer? How do you like that? So here's the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is right there on the northwest uh, seashore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, sea of Galilee. This right here, this little portion right here, is the region of Galilee that includes various cities. Is, uh, Jerusalem is down here, down in the south, um, and here's the Mediterranean Sea. But it's in this area when Jesus was engaged in his Galilean ministry, he, he, he lays his, some foundation there in Capernaum, and the city of Capernaum is his headquarters for ministry, for his ministry in Galilee. 
And the reason he lays, he lays uh, his roots there is, is exactly what we read in Matthew chapter 4. So that this prophecy of Isaiah might be uh, fulfilled, which says, The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And the, the reason he chooses Zebulon and Naphtali, it's from Isaiah chapter 9, but what is interesting about Zebulon and Naphtali is that when the king of Assyria in 2 Kings chapter 15, when the king of Assyria came and infiltrated the people of Israel, the first tribe and the first area in which they infiltrated is going to be the northern tribe, and it's going to be Naphtali. And the first people of God who were taken captive, taken captive by the Assyrians were the people or the tribe or the individuals who lived in this region, which was the tribe given over to or the region given over to the tribe of Naphtali. And they experienced a great deal of burden and suffering and darkness at a very early stage in the time of um, over being, being overcome by the Assyrians and going into the captivity. And the reason that this region, even in Isaiah, even in the Old Testament, not even in the New Testament, it's called Galilee of the Gentiles. And the reason this, this region was already called the region of the Gentiles was because it lays on a route through which all Gentiles pass in and out of Israel. And in Jesus' time, the region of Galilee had become an important center of Roman occupation. So for all Gentiles who came in and out of Israel from the north, they always went through Naphtali. And so it was always synonymous with or, or um, known to be a region of Gentiles. A lot of non-Jewish non Gentile people lived there. And Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 9, primarily that he has come as a light to those who have historically experienced great suffering and darkness historically and spiritually in their lives. And he's going to make Capernaum his headquarters for his Galilean ministry. And this is the starting place in which we see him step into the role of Messiah and fulfilling this very specific role of being a light. Not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. To all people. To all people. He's going to be a light to those who are steeped in darkness. So now, go over to John chapter 1. Again, this is more of a study, Bible study format. So I know it's a little bit of more reading, but that's intentional. We need to know our Bibles. We need to know the Word of God. Be very familiar with the text and the scriptures that we base our lives upon. John chapter 1, and then we're going to be at John 8 here very soon, but just setting this up. John 1 and 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Or, alternatively, the darkness did not overcome the light. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light, that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Go over to John 7. Seven thirty-seven. On the last day, the great day of the feast, 
Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, the difference in time between chapter 6 and chapter 7 is about a period of six months. The period of time between uh, 6 and 5 is about a year. We find, our, we find ourselves in the, during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is this feast that he is here having a part in. Look at verse 40. And I want you to notice the division that is caused by Jesus. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Now, this brings us to our scripture, chapter 8. All right? This is still in the same period of time between chapter 7 and 8. 7 and 8 are happening within a day from one another. At the very end of chapter 7, it says, um, And everyone went to his own house. But Jesus, chapter 8, verse 1, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. I'm just going to read through verse 12, and that's all the scripture I have. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who was without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, He spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, if you can just bear with me, what I'm about to reveal to you and giving you the background and context makes this scripture much richer, much more precious, and much more impactful if you can follow with me as to why Jesus is saying this. Why did he in John chapter 7, 37 say, come to me, all you who thirst, and you'll never thirst again? And why did he again, he said, he said another saying, again he said, I am the light of the world, he who follows me. He's saying this in the environment or the context of this week of the Feast of Tabernacles. At the very beginning of chapter 7, 
His brothers don't yet believe that he's the Messiah. And his brothers are telling him, if you're really the Messiah, why don't you go to the feast and reveal who you are? Go ahead, in front of everybody, reveal by signs and wonders. For once and for all, show us who you are. Show us. And he doesn't go up immediately. Eventually, he does go up. And he goes to Jerusalem. And it's during the Feast of Tabernacles. This Feast of Tabernacles is shortly after the Passover week. And it's a seven-day celebration. As a matter of fact, it is the most joyous celebratory feast that the Jews celebrate, both then and now. There are, there are, I read a rabbi who said, if you have not been to the Feast of Tabernacles, or what they call it today is Sukkot, Sukkoth, S-U-K-K-O-T, if that's how you say it, Sukkot, whatever, that's what they call it. That he said, you've, if you've never been to this, uh, to this festival, you've never experienced real joy. This is an extremely joyous and celebratory feast. And the intention of the feast is to celebrate. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Ingathering. It's to celebrate the harvest. It's to celebrate the ingathering of the harvest of grapes and olives, and while grain was reaped between April and June. And it was a seven-day feast to celebrate God's special care of the people of Israel while they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And during this week, what they will do is they will create little booths, temporary little shacks or booths in the city of Jerusalem. And I think I have a picture. Uh, Cody, if you will pull this up. There's going to be a picture of the city streets of Jerusalem and some dwellings there. And it's, you're going to see how there's these temporary booths that are, are set up. And it's to represent how that they were wandering in the wilderness in a temporary dwelling in tents. You got it? It's on that, that uh, PowerPoint. Um, and it's to represent that God took care of them in their temporary dwelling state. And so even today, they will set up these temporary little shacks or what they call booths in the city of Jerusalem, and they will actually live in them temporarily for a little while. It's going to be, keep going. Keep going. Well, it's on there somewhere. Maybe it's in the wrong order. But I wanted to show you a, a, a picture, an illustration of it. But so that, that's what they would do during this period of time. And when John, in John chapter 7, verse 37, when Jesus said, Come to me, all, you, all of you who thirst, there was this, there was this um, ceremony in which the priest would go to the pool of Shalom. He would have a gold pitcher, and actually there's a picture of that. Just keep that PowerPoint up. There, um, there, there was a picture of that. But they would take a gold pitcher. They would go to the Pool of Shalom. They would have a celebratory walk back to the temple and pour the water on the altar. And in John chapter 7, when Jesus says, Come to me, all you who thirst, he's doing that to symbolize. You see this gold pitcher full of water to represent God's ability to provide for your needs and the rainfall? There you go. So they would take the, from the Pool of Shalom, they would go back to the temple, and they would pour water on the altar. So that's the significance of John chapter 7. 
Now, as we come to John chapter 8, there's one more ceremony likened unto this. There's one more ceremony, which is the lighting ceremony. It's the illumination ceremony, where every single night, there were these 15-foot columns, four columns that were set up in the temple court called the women's court that were full of, that had a bowl on top and they were full of oil and they would light them on fire. And in the middle of the night, if you were up on the Mount of Olives, it would look like the entire temple is on fire during this period of time. And the people would carry torches and all night they would sing and praise and celebrate under these lights. Go ahead and go back to the, the, those uh, pictures of the lights. So there you go. There's an actual real picture. You see the lights coming up? Those are four torches. This whole court right here is called the women's court. This right here is the temple, okay? This, whole, this, this, is go, this leads you into the temple. But this is the women's court. The women are allowed to come in here. But they will, for seven days, every single night, celebrate all night long under the lights of these 15-foot columns that are set on fire. I think there's go on to those other pictures that are, uh, show this. There you go. So you see them celebrating, and there's the Levitical orchestra that's there playing the instruments, and there's the, this 15-foot column that's full of oil, and it's burning, and all the people looking on. It's a very, very exciting week, a very joyous and celebratory week. And in light of the temple looking as though it's on fire because it's so bright with these lights, Jesus says this in John chapter 8. Right in the middle of this feast, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so he is making a direct correlation. He's using this lamplighting rite to make a metaphor directing people to his messianic calling as being the light of the world, just as was prophesied by Isaiah in chapter 9, and using this illustration of the lighting ceremony during this week. So, very quickly, let me make some practical application for our lives. I'm sorry, Cody, I, have this, I probably have all those out of, out of sync. And so, um, when we look at what does Jesus mean that he is the light of the world, we, under, we understand why he said it in that period of time, Okay? But what does it mean when Jesus says, I am the light of the world? I have three points I want to make to you. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is saying, I illuminate. As the light of the world, Jesus illuminates. And he illuminates in two ways. In the first sense, he illuminates and, ex he illuminates and exposes sin in the dead and darkened heart and then brings Life. We understand throughout Scripture that we are all condemned because we are already in darkness. In John chapter 3, and this is the condemnation, that men loved darkness more than light. And Jesus came as a light into a dark world. We are born into a state of darkness. We are rebels against God, and we have all sinned against God and gone astray. He alone comes as a light in the midst of darkness. And in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul encourages them not to, to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having the understanding darkened, alienated from the life of God. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ, when I say it illuminates and it shines a light upon the human heart that's steeped in darkness, the gospel of Jesus Christ will always expose sin. If it's the real gospel that's being preached, it will always shine light on sin. It will always expose sin. It will always uh, make us aware of the very ugly and disgusting, wicked areas of our life. You cannot hide from it. You cannot hide from the light that is Christ Jesus. And while Jesus is simultaneously forgiving a woman who is caught in the very act of adultery, these, these, these self-righteous, pharisaical, hypocritical people, they bring this woman who's caught in the very midst of adultery. They don't bring the man. They're just using this woman as a ploy to try to catch Jesus and say, ha, you don't believe in the law. And if you say that we should stone her, then we're going to bring, bring an accusation against your kindness and goodness. And so Jesus is very clever in this. He has like a kind of a stalling tactic. He, he stoops down. He's, he writes in the, in the ground. He's there at the temple. And what does he say? He said, you without sin throw the first stone. Okay? You're, you're so quick to condemn this woman. And rightly so. She's, she's sinned. She's walking in darkness. But you without sin, you throw the first stone. The wisdom and the discernment of Jesus is just amazing, isn't it? And all of them are convicted by their conscience. In the presence of perfect light, in the presence of perfect holiness, in the presence of a truth which points its finger, not, as, not where you point at somebody else, but it's a finger that points at you and you have to look at yourself. And they're forced to reckon with their own sin and brokenness and inadequacy. And they realize we're condemning this, these, these women, but this woman, but we are condemned by our own sin. And they all leave. From the youngest to the oldest, they all leave the presence. And they cannot bring an accusation against this woman. This woman, she is ashamed. I'm sure she's humiliated. She's there in front of Jesus. She looks up. He says, where are your accusers? She said, they've left. And she, he says, is there anyone who condemns you? She says, no. He says, neither do I condemn you. And it's very important that we know exactly what he says after that. I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Don't sin anymore. Quit sinning is what he's saying. In the presence of Jesus Christ, these self-righteous, haughty, prideful religious people are cut to the heart. And this woman who was condemned in men's eyes is found forgiven. If she will repent and place faith in Christ, you are forgiven, go and sin no more. That's what the light of Jesus Christ does. He illumines the darkened mind and heart and exposes sin and shows us who we really are. You can't hide from it. You cannot run away. Much like when you turn on the light to your kitchen or in your garage and you see those little critters start to scurry away, those roaches, as soon as the light is, is, is on, you see them. You don't see them during, while the light is on because they're off in the darkness, aren't they? And they like to come out into the darkness and the light's off. You shine it, and there they all are. It's exposed. And that is what the light of Jesus Christ does. As I just, I just alluded to in John chapter 3, 
verses 19 through 21. Just listen to this. Um, this is right after John 3, 16. And here's what he says. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and the men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ will always expose sin. And when he says, I am the light of the world, he comes to illuminate the heart, the darkened mind, expose sin, and the intention is to lead to life. That's why he's called, and he is the light of men. This life is the light of of men. In him is light, in him is light. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Many of you are familiar with this scripture from Psalms 119. The entrance of your word gives what? Light. The entrance of God's truth will set the record straight as to who I am and my relationship to God. And it will, it will set my mind and my heart straight. The entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And so he illuminates and exposes sin in the dead and darkened heart. In a second sense in which he illuminates, he illuminates or brings final formation to the Old Testament scriptures. What is a shadow? When you think about it, what is a shadow? How many of you remember Peter Pan? What did Peter Pan lose? What did he lose? His shadow. That's impossible to lose your shadow. But Peter Pan lost his shadow. And Wendy helped him. It's a good, 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 good story. But a shadow is, is, is just merely this. A shadow, I'm going to blow your minds with a scientific fact. A shadow is merely produced when an object comes between a light source and a surface. And a shadow is projected on that surface, which is on the other side of that object that comes between the light source. Okay? A shadow indicates there is something there. Okay? It indicates something is there, but it only gives you an approximation as to what the object might be. Depending on the distance between the object and the light source and the surface, you can maybe approximate as to what is the silhouette of this object, what is this thing that's casting a shadow. But as far as knowing the exact height and depth and color and texture and smell of this object which is casting a shadow, you don't know. It's just a shadow. You have no idea what, what it is. The shadow is not the real thing. It's the object that's coming between the light source. And much like the Old Testament, we learn that the Old Testament is a shadow of things to come. That in the Old Testament, it's merely shadows that eventually come to us and we are what's revealed to us is that it's all pointing to Jesus which is the object and the substance of everything. Jesus brings full formation and illuminates all of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is the key 
to all of Scripture. Everything. The Old Testament's pointing forward. The New Testament's pointing backwards. It's all Jesus that makes sense of it all. And if you read in Colossians chapter 2, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. Meaning, all of these symbols and types in the Old Testament, those aren't the thing we're looking towards. That's not the final thing that we find our salvation in. Keeping festivals and circumcision and the law and the temple and tabernacle, all these symbols... Just like those 15-foot columns, those lights, the water pitcher, all these things, they're all a shadow. They're all a vague uh, 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 things that point to something that has real substance and really is which it's pointing to. And he says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In Hebrews 10 one, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. Here's what I say. Don't settle for a shadow. Don't settle for a shadow. And that's what the Jews have done. That's what they did when they didn't accept Christ. As the fulfillment of all those shadows and types and symbols. And they still settle for a shadow. And when we look at the Old Testament, it has to bring us eventually to Jesus who helps us to make sense of it all. He illuminates and brings formation to all of Scripture. Those shadows, those those vague approximations that we can make come into full focus in the person of Jesus Christ. He shines light on all that. He is the light himself, and all that shines on him, points to him. We know from the law, Jesus said, Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. I'm the fulfillment of all things. Moses, all the prophets were pointing to me. And the shadows of the Old Testament are removed when the light of Jesus Christ comes on scene. Number two, as the light of the world, Jesus guides. As the light of the world, Jesus guides. Everybody, all together, I want you to close your eyes really tight. We're going to do a little illustration here. Close your eyes really tight. No peeking. Close your eyes. Close your eyes real tight. Real tight. You got them closed? Did it feel a little darker? Okay. If I were to ask any one of you, really this, 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 would, this would work if it was pitch black in here and you could open your eyes, but I can't, I can't do that. If I asked any one of you, keep your eyes closed, Kristen. If I asked any one of you to stand up right now without feeling with your hands, without bumping into anything, and without tripping, if I asked you, come up to the stage and grab the piece of music that I have on the podium and bring it back to your seat, could you do that without feeling around, without tripping, without bumping into anything? Could you? No. You can open your eyes. You couldn't. You can turn the lights on. I was really hoping it would get really dark in here. 
but you just got to close your eyes. But the idea is that you can be in absolute darkness with your eyes open and have no idea where to go, how to get there. And you can try to feel around, and you can try to, to, to walk, and you're going to bump into things, you're going to trip, you're going to get harmed, you're going to get hurt. But when we say that Jesus is the light of the world, he's saying that I guide. He's saying that I am your guide. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. And if it were pitch black in here, and you could open your eyes and you could not see a thing, if somebody happened to have a flashlight, all you would have to do is get right behind them and follow their path and follow the light that they shed upon the path, and you can make it to your destination. How many of you have ever felt like, I have no idea what to do, how to do it, what decision to, be, to, to make, how to talk to this person, what, how to deal with this hard situation. It's, it's like I'm in darkness and I'm groping around and I'm trying to figure this out. You ever felt that way in life? I, I don't know what to do. But Jesus is saying, I am your God. I'm the light. I will shed a light on your path. As we read in Psalms 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When Jesus says he's the light, this is also is an allusion to what can you think of in the Exodus and when it comes to a great light that guided God's people. In Exodus chapter 13, for 40 years, during the day, a pillar of cloud led the people. Wherever the pillar of cloud went, that's where they went during the day. At night, what did they follow? Follow a pillar of fire, a light. And wherever that light went, that's where they went. You could go in opposite direction, but you're going to be lost. You're not going to be with the people of God, and you're going to be wandering more than 40 years. But if you follow after this light, and you're guided by this light, Jesus is also alluding to this picture that he is that pillar of fire that leads and directs and guides his people and sheds light upon our path and gives us illumination upon issues that are so hard for us to figure out in the natural. He gives us that ability to know what is ahead of us. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this is, can also be translated, or the valley of deep darkness, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. You're going to lead in your guide me. You're going to be a light to my path. And number three, as the light of the world, Jesus purifies. Go to 1 John 1. First John 1 and 5. As the light of the world, Jesus purifies. In light of this coronavirus, um, some information has been pursued by people in regards to the usage of ultraviolet light to kill viruses. How many of you are familiar with this? You know, it's in the discussion. It's online. In light of this virus we have going on. And there is a particular uh, technology that's been around for almost 100 years called germicidal ultraviolet light, ultraviolet technology. This has been around for a while. We know for a while that a particular light, which is called ultraviolet C light, 
Now, this is, this is given off by the sun, but the ozone filters it out. And thankfully, because this ultraviolet sea light, um, it can cause cancer and it destroys our DNA. And it can uh, destroy the corneas of our eyes if we were exposed to it. But small organisms or viruses can be killed by this light. It can be killed by this ultraviolet light. How many of you have ever heard this phrase, sunlight is the best disinfectant? Sunlight is the best disinfectant. That's a saying, and that saying is, is merely to, to, to bring attention to the fact that um, in the event of corruption, transparency solves everything. If you allow things to be transparent, it will root out corruption and won't allow corruption to be there. Just be transparent. Stay out in the open. Light is the best disinfectant. 1 John 1 and 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, in darkness we lie and do not practice the truth. Okay? That's not the testimony of a Christian. Verse 7 is, this is what our life should look like right here, verse 7, in relation to fellowship with God in light. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, what happens? We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. To live out in the open, exposed to the light of Christ, God I, I give you everything. Let there be no hidden parts of my life. I'm not going to scurry off into the darkness, into the shadows. I'm an open book. I'm naked before you. I want to walk hand in hand with you, fellowship in the light, and you put your finger on whatever you need. And it's in that fellowship, in light, in full fellowship with him, that he continually cleanses us or sanctifies us. This is the process of sanctification. As I walk with him, I'm fully justified. I stand perfect before God on the day of judgment. But I'm not like Jesus as I want to be. And so it's a life of sanctification, a life of purification, a life of continual cleansing that as I walk in the light, there's no condemnation. As I walk in the light, just as this woman in the presence of Jesus Christ, she was not condemned. If you stay in the light, hand in hand with Jesus, fellowshipping with him, there's continual cleansing. There's continual sanctification, and there's no condemnation. The light brings purification to your life, and it will burn away all the impurities. It will burn away all the things that are um, uh, displeasing to the Lord. His light is the greatest disinfectant against impurities in your life, against sin. Stay close to Jesus. Let him show you who you are, what issues you have, and don't be discouraged by it because those whom he chastens, he loves. If there's conviction in your life, let that be a comfort because that means the Holy Spirit's at work in your life and he loves you enough not to leave you how you are. We're transformed on the day of conversion, but we're being continuously transformed from glory to glory as we behold him face to face. And he is the image of the invisible God. He is the glorious Jesus Christ that as we behold him, we will become more like him. What you behold, you will become. What you behold, you will become. You stand in the presence of Jesus. Just like Moses was in the presence of God, his face shone 
where he had to put a veil over his face and nobody could look at him. In Jesus Christ, that veil is removed. That is the darkness of our minds. Christ illuminates our hearts. We live in fellowship with him. We live in the kingdom of light. Isn't that a wonderful life? We don't have to have secrets. We don't have to hide things. God already knows and he already sees it. You just be real with God. You be honest with him and allow him to shine his light upon your life. I end right here with Revelation chapter 21. The last scripture right here. If you want to turn there, you can. Revelation 21, 22. This is what John the Revelator saw at the very end of Revelation. The new heavens and the new earths, new earth is consummated. And here is the state that we will find ourselves in when we are in God's glorious kingdom. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And who is the Lamb? Jesus. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter into anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You look forward to that day? I look forward to where the glory of God is the illumination of that new city, of that new heavens and that new earth. I look forward to the day where the Lamb of God is the light, and it's in his presence that I will dwell and live forever, for all of eternity separated from sin forever, separated from the warring against my flesh. But if I would just here and now stay in his presence, allow myself to be guided by his light, to be illuminated by his light, to be purified by his light, I can be sure that I'll be there in that new city. You are a chosen generation, Peter says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're called to be people of light, not people of darkness. We're called to be people. We're called to be like moons. We're called to be little moons. Does the moon itself have its own light source? No. But the moon only shines as the sun shines upon it. And the moon, when it's a full moon, it can bring a lot of illumination in the middle of the night, can't it? And its only source of light is that the sun is shining upon it and it's reflecting down upon the earth. And we're to be as the moon where we reflect God's light. He is light. And that light in us is the life of men. It's Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand with me?